Hey, welcome to the Men Podcast. It's Joe Roter here, coming at you, podcasting solo, just like usual. Uh, brought to you by Red's Fly Shop, of course, the world's most complete fly fishing outfitter. Before we get into it today, a couple of housekeeping items. Uh, number one, this is now available on iTunes. Thanks to my genius associate, Dallas. Got it. Got us set up there, and these are now mirrored over on iTunes. So if you prefer that platform, find it on iTunes. Number two, I'm giving away one of my favorite rods, uh, an Echo Shadow X Euro Nymphing Rod. Giving it away April 1st. And no, that's not an April Fool's prank. I am giving it away to an Instagram follower. So whatever you're doing, aside from listening to this podcast, go over to Instagram and click follow on Red's Fly Shop's Instagram profile. I'm going to try to do a an increasingly good job on giving you up-to-date reports on fishing, tips, tactics, kind of what we're doing, along with some good photos of what I am up to and what our staff is doing. So go follow us on Instagram on it. April 1st. I will choose a follower to give my Echo Shadow X 3-weight Euro Nymphing Rod to. Uh, okay, uh, other things. Rendezvous event. It's the best event in fly fishing, best event in the country, in my humble opinion. It's May 2nd. We have awesome presenters. It's free. You need to get there. It it's it's worth getting on a plane to come to the event as long as you pair some fishing up around before or after the event. Uh awesome event. We're gonna have Euronym fishing seminars. Uh the great one, George Cook, is gonna do a trout spay fishing seminar. These are on the water. There's also going to be indoor seminars. So if you have any questions about travel or adventure that you could possibly have, come ask us in person right there face-to-face. You can't get the same experience over the internet or over a podcast that you can talking with someone in person. So come visit us. It's May 2nd. Mia Shepard of Little Creek Outfitters is going to be there. She's going to be doing... Some advanced uh, spay casting for distance. She's a world champion spay caster. That's going to be on the water. Our team is going to be there. We're giving away a Watermaster Kodiak boat to the winner of the non-professional fly casting competition. No pros allowed. Just you, civilian anglers, competing in a very fun fly casting competition that we manage and officiate. The winner gets a $1,900 Watermaster boat. They're one of our key sponsors. We're going to give away a sage rod to somebody just for showing up at the event. You don't have to do anything or win anything, and it's free. Just come to the event, get your door prize ticket. You have to be present to win. We're going to give away a sage rod at the end of the end of the event. Uh, there's a link in our Instagram profile. Since you're now a follower of us on Instagram, just follow the link in uh, the, the profile there to the rendezvous event. The other thing that I strongly want to encourage you, if you live in the Pacific Northwest, check out the Reds University of Fly Fishing. Uh, It's an idea that we had 10 years ago. We weren't prepared to fully execute on it. We finally are there with like how we schedule and the team we have, but it's something I really believe in. Uh, It's You can't learn to fly fish on the internet. You can't learn it in a single class or a single season you really need to think about making a commitment to it. And we have just a killer program. And the heart and soul of it is going fishing with guides, not just being told what to do by guides. And it's a two- to four-year program. 
There's a link to that currently in our Instagram profile as well, or you can just go find University of Fly Fishing uh, on our website. But if you want to get not just decent at fly fishing, you want to get good at it, and you want to be effective, and you want to experience all those same highs that you know highly capable anglers do, we are creating a group of anglers around this university that are committed, confident, and capable that can that will be able to go anywhere in the world and, and be effective as a fly angler. So check out the University of Fly Fishing. That's new this spring. We just opened enrollment for that. It's a killer program. I believe in it, and I am going to be a big part of leading a big percentage of the outings or the fish-alongs uh, that we have in that class. So that's pretty much it. Okay, five minutes in, got all my housekeeping items done. Now we're going to talk about get to the kind of the meat and potatoes because I do not want to waste your time. What I learned uh, this what last week guiding. Uh, number one, I came off a of chili and you know, I did a podcast on that. You can listen to it. You know, I went to Patagonia. You can listen to it or not listen to it. Uh, if, it if you don't think it'll interest you, I think it's good for anybody to listen to. But the thing about chili is like the guides there, they're highly capable guides because they fish a huge variety of stuff. They fish little rivers, spring creeks, lakes, big rivers, glacial lakes, and highly fertile, you know, spring fed lakes. So they, they do a little bit of everything and getting to fish with them, they often have kind of a different lens that they look at uh, a day of fishing through. And I always come back super invigorated about that. And I got back from Chile and pretty much it was, you know, highly motivated to get back in the water. I, I started tying flies again, which I don't do all the time. I'm a highly capable fly tire, but generally if I'm sitting down at a desk, I'm doing something with three kids and a business to run and, you know, life in general, I generally am not tying flies. Tied some flies, got after it this last Friday and had really, really good dry fly fishing. Some of the best for, I got a Friday, Sunday and yesterday, which is Monday. And it was some of the best, three of the best days I've ever had fishing and guiding early spring on my home river, which is the Yakima. And some of the advice I'm going to give you is going to, going to play across all rivers, not just the Yakima river. But the thing about you know, I would say early spring fishing is it can be very, very challenging because we go through these big temperature swings. Uh, for us here, it can be pretty cold in the morning, like high 20s, 30, you know, right at freezing in the morning this time of year. And there's a real specific feeding window that the trout often have in the afternoon as water temperatures peak. And, you know, over the years, you know, I'm 40, 40 years old, almost 41. And it seemed like early in guiding, I would get on the water and it was just kind of hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And it was, you know, we, you know, I still fish just as hard as I do. I just do it a little bit differently and I apply energy differently. And you, when the water's cold like that, or you feel like you're up against some challenging conditions, um, like we are early in the day, you have to really take a deep breath and slow down. And I say that all the time. Just take a deep breath and slow down your fishing. If you think the bite is going to be a little bit slow or a little bit weak, and if it's not, so be it. You haven't lost anything, but you got to take your fish one trout at a time early in the season like this and develop a system and a pattern. And when by pattern, I don't mean a fly. I mean, are the fish sitting in you know slow walking speed water in deep troughs? Are they sitting right up at the heads of the runs? Or are they in the tail outs? And it seems like you have to kind of figure out 
where the trout are holding and what they're doing uh, early in the season because when the air temperature is colder than the water, I tend to find the fish really suck back into the tanks. So they kind of recede down into the deeper water. They're much more likely to, to encounter springs in deeper water, you know, where they're having some maybe warmer controlled flow that's coming in from underground rather than that real icy, bitter cold water that's up in the shallows and on the surface. I mean, just think about it. When it's 25 degrees at night and in the morning, or even 20 degrees, that surface water is really cold. The shallow water is going to be really cold. Those fish will suck back. So I tend to, um, on all of my trips, I didn't even fish right off the bat. I just got my anglers in the boat. And whether you're wading or boating, it doesn't matter. I just went right to a, a spot where there was, I knew there to be fish. And really slowly and methodically, I wade fished uh, each of those mornings. I started out getting out of the boat and just wade fishing, just like you could do. You could pull over to the side of the road. You could use a pontoon boat. You could use your own boat. You could go and you could wade fish just like I do. And uh, the goal was to really quietly and diligently step through some of these holes and these kind of these known spots where I've got deep walking speed water. And, uh, and, and we fished, we used, we used, uh, dry droppers on Friday and, uh, yeah, we used only dry flies and droppers on Friday and Sunday. We never, actually, I haven't used an indicator in three days of guiding, which is awesome, especially this early in the year. We only used dry, dry flies and droppers on Friday and Sunday. And then, uh, yesterday we, the guys want a Euro nymph. So we, they're just learning and, uh, I was teaching them some Euro nymphing tactics, but that's beside the point. We stepped into the water with dry flies and droppers, droppers about three feet deep, and in delicate conditions like low clear water, a dry dropper can be really, really effective if you run it longer with very light fluorocarbon tippet to your dropper nymph, and I can't advocate the use of tungsten beadhead jig heads, jig head nymphs, so it's got a, a jig head style hook and a tungsten bead, and don't buy crap cheap flies from some discount fly dealer. They'll sell you a tungsten bead that's 2% tungsten or 10% tungsten, whereas a good bead is going to be like 80 to 90% tungsten or more. So buy good nymphs, okay? If you tie flies, go to Nymph Master. Buy your, buy your beads and hooks at Nymph Master uh, from, from Jason. If you're going to tie flies, we don't sell tying material. You can go to Nymph Master and get that. But if you're just looking for flies, go to our website and look for tungsten jigged nymphs. We have an entire section dedicated to Euro nymph fishing. And that's a good place to find them, whether you're using a dry dropper or not. But we fish dry flies and droppers, uh, just a pretty standard fare, number 12 jig head pheasant tails because they're heavy, and uh, a small squall of stonefly nymph called a 20-incher with a black cone head. And we ran 5X fluorocarbon tippet. Pretty light line for that size of fly because it sinks fast and allows the nymph to move naturally in those slower currents that are beneath the surface. So the nymph kind of is in more control of its own destiny on light line. So we started out doing that uh, very slowly and methodically picking apart only the deeper buckets. The river where I'm guiding is low and clear right now. When it gets really, really cold at night, those fish tend to recede into the buckets. And the buckets where you cannot see the bottom or where the fish are going to be condensed to. So if you can see the bottom clearly, no fish there. If the bottom is blurry and it's near a big pool, you might get fish. But generally speaking, I'm fishing areas where I exclusively cannot identify the bottom. Just simple tip for reading water. Uh, 
is the day goes on and the water temperature warms up. Uh, we didn't we didn't see this the last week, but eventually what will happen is when the shallow water gets warmer than the deep water, the fish will migrate up to the edges. Okay, so what we need is we need a couple of warm days and a warm afternoon, and when that shallow water, when the air remains warmer than the water for 24 hours, so say the water's 40 degrees, and I get a nighttime low that's say 42, 43 degrees, I know those fish are going to move up into the shallows. So I'm going to readjust my strategy once I start to see that in the spring. Uh, but until then, the fish are generally holding in those deeper pools. You can use a variety of strategies. You can indicator fish. You can fish deep dry droppers. Whatever you do, you want to think uh, it's like this. So if you if you walk into a pool and you throw a big noisy nymphing rig, which is what most people use, they use a thing on a bobber that's too big. The guides, I mean, like I want to. I've said this again and again in a podcast. Don't fish like. If you've been on a guided trip or you're getting mentoring from the guides or even mentoring from people in fly shops, including our fly shop, because we're largely a drift boat, we're a big Western drift boat style river, you can get away with big, noisy, heavy nymph rigs. You know, two flies, a piece, a little piece of split shot, and a big thingamabobber or an airlock type indicator. Because we're going to throw into a pool, we're going to make some noise, and we're going to try to catch an aggressive fish or two when we're there. When you're on foot, you might throw, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 casts in, in this pool. It's critical that you have a quieter setup, that you're not making a lot of noise, you're not offering a tremendous amount of distraction, that the fish will continue their typical kind of feeding and foraging rhythm while you're fishing. Euro-nymphing is great for that. You slowly sneak in there like a, like a blue heron, real quietly, you might have a little movement with your rod, but the fish get accustomed to it and they continue feeding. You're not making a bunch of noise with a strike indicator and your hook sets are much more delicate. Like with a thingamabobber, you throw in there and you've got four feet of slack and your bobber goes down and you rip it out of there. Because you had a slack line, you have this kind of this, I don't want to say spastic, but it's a pretty aggressive noisy hook set. With Euronymphing, you're already on a tight line. So you have a suspicious, a suspicious grab that you feel is just a tiny little check for a hook set. You don't make a lot of noise. In fact, if you hook set, you can often just continue the drift. And so you're disturbing. There's a lot less pollution in the water with lighter nymphing rigs. And that doesn't have to be Euro nymphing. It could be using a small yarn indicator or a New Zealand style indicator or just a really small, light, delicate, like the Rio Kahuna indicators. Um, you know, go find all this stuff on our online shop. You know, I will try to sell you some stuff here and there, but get, get lighter, smaller indicators. You should also have some thingamabobbers with you, but when the water is low and clear and the fish are isolated to pools and you're going to be fishing that pool for an extended period of time, you need to think a little bit more stealthy than a number eight stonefly nymph, a piece of shot, a lightning bug and a thingamabobber. Okay. So, over the course of the three days, I had absolutely tremendous fishing, a, a, a harvest rate that cannot be sustained. We're fishing these fish after a long winter of not much pressure. Uh, they're pre-spawn. The, the size and quantity of fish that I saw this last week is not going to be sustained. But man, I tell you, it inspires me that, you know, this keep them wet, this keep them wet 
mindset that a lot of the guides and anglers have adopted. And, and I hope all anglers can just do it and release these fish very delicately, fight them quick, let them go fast. Let's not touch them with our hands. Let's not squeeze them. Let's not drop them in the boat or overhandle them. Get them back in the water so they can get back to feeding and they don't get their growth started. I mean, the, the size and health of the trout we're seeing is tremendous. So big, big thanks to everybody that's been, been doing that on all rivers across uh, the nation. So uh, don't pollute the water. Think quietly. Uh, when you have a hatch coming up, you know, we're on the front end of the squala hatch. We dry fly fished from lunch on all three days, did nothing but dry fly fish after lunch, had tremendous dry fly fishing. Now go back and listen. If you're planning a trip in the next couple weeks, go back and listen to the podcast. I don't remember what episode it was, but it was just the tips and truth about fishing the squala hatch. Don't go into the the dry fly game here in March or April thinking it's a numbers game because it's not. It's about catching a few to several high-quality fish on dry flies in the early, early part of the season. Uh, as far as the dry flies I fish, I tied a few flies. You can see a picture of one of them on our Instagram uh, You know, about a week back or two weeks back. Uh, but a bitterroot style or bullet head squala is an excellent choice. The number one fly I like is the, the, that I have at the shop is the bullet head squala by Solitude. That fly, there's something about it. That thing absolutely hunts. Love that pattern. One thing to keep in mind about your squallows, if you're tying them or buying them, is squallows are really flat. They don't flop around like a salmon fly or golden stone. They're not big and noisy on the water. They waddle and wiggle their legs. Um, so I, I generally like... Uh, on patterns to have hackle and hair and cut the wings. So like if I had a, say a, a stimulator style squalla, pull the elk hair down to the sides of the fly to make it look like legs and cut the wing in the top. And I should, I should show you a little hack on video about that. Maybe I'll put that on my YouTube story. Uh, if you're not a YouTube follower, go subscribe to Red's Fly Shop on YouTube. But I think I'll put that on a YouTube story because it's not really worth making a video about. But cutting that wing down flat can really be helpful for squallows is I've looked at that insect uh, on the water the last few days. They're always very flat. It's very rare for them to flap their wings, and they don't travel much. They sit there and they waddle, but they don't really move much when they're actually on the water. So keep that in mind. You can, you know, when fish are aggressive, they'll bite a chubby Chernobyl-type fly, you know, in like a number 10 or 12, uh, but that's when the fish are really aggressive. This is something I want you to take away just in general is anybody can catch a trout that's aggressive. There's really nothing like special or I don't want to take anything away from catching aggressive trout. I love aggressive trout, but there really isn't anything special or unique about it. You're putting the ball in the court of the fish at that point for to be aggressive. What I want to do is I want to have flies and strategies that fish for every fish, even one that wasn't didn't even know he was hungry that day. And I want to make my fly look so delicate, delicately appetizing, meaning there's nothing to make it nervous, the trout. And uh, what I found over the last few days of dry fly fishing is there's a huge difference between being a really, truly great dry fly angler and, and just being a good fly fisherman. And it's somewhat of a lost art, and I try really hard to take the anglers, and unfortunately I get to fish with a lot of anglers that are very good fishermen, 
But like, just like I said, coming out, coming out of that trip to Patagonia where you can, you get to cast at a trout that you can see and see if I can wordsmith this right. Like as you go, as you look at your own dry fly fishing, you're like, okay, where am I at on a scale of one to 10? A lot of people are twos and threes and fours and they don't even realize it. And I don't mean to sound arrogant or pompous. This is just sheer 20 years of just watching people cast and learning myself of what works and what doesn't. But I had somewhat of an epiphany when I was in Patagonia a couple weeks ago. We were wading this big box canyon. And there's a trout that we can see in this glacial river. And it's just, it's holding there and it's feeding. And I can see the trout very clearly. I'm up peeking over a rock bluff. And I'm looking at that trout and I'm going, man, well, you know, what would I do? Like, how would I show my fly to that fish? And, And what would I do to get that fish? And rule number one is you get one shot right? You get one really good opportunity to ambush and surprise an unexpected critter. Okay. So I get one shot. The fly is a little less relevant, but my one shot's got to be perfect. The fly has to land correctly. And I am a firm believer. And I heard this reiterated over and over and over again by the guides in Chile. And the fish there Although they're not heavily pressured, they're quite smart because many of these spring creeks and things, they have an abundance of food. So they're not at the mercy of their appetite, much like trout can be in the higher latitudes, like Alaska is a perfect example. When trout are hungry in Alaska, you can do no wrong. When trout are not hungry, often like in Chile, you have to make it look really, really good. And I heard this reiterated again and again, the way that fly lands, and it has a profound impact on the trout's appetite. Most good food doesn't last that long in a river. How often do you just see a a big beetle or a grasshopper just floating around in the river? Not very often. They do land there, but they don't last that long because they get devoured. Not always by a big trout, but the minnows will devour them in pretty short order. So when a big trout just sees an object come floating downstream and doesn't know where it came from, from my experience, it's far less likely to eat it. When you can show that fish the fly and make it land just right, where it hits with a delicate splat, and it makes a circular ring, not a line or a V-wake like it's on tension, the fish is exponentially more likely to take your fly when it can see the origin of it. They're not saying you land it right on top of its head. You have to land it in its peripheral, preferably in its line of current that it's feeding in. But when it can see the origin of the fly, it's far more likely to eat. This is especially true on the Squala stonefly hatch. And I found this last week because what happens is the trout are primarily eating the female stonefly and the female is returning to the water to lay its eggs. And these stoneflies have wings. They have four wings. They flutter around. When you do see them flying, they look a little bit like a hummingbird. The squalas don't fly much. Uh, And they typically fly on really nice days or calm days. But what they do is they get, the, the stoneflies will go into the trees. After they hatch, they crawl out of the river, go through a metamorphosis. They go up in the trees. And the females will eventually release a pheromone. And there will be significant breeding activity like in uh, a particular area or even a particular tree. It might be like a large willow tree, for instance. After they go through their whatever their gestation process is, I'm not a bug doctor. Uh, 
but they'll go through a period of time where there's gestation and the eggs need to go back to the water. The females will fly out of the tree and they will land on the water to lay their eggs. A trout, if it sees that bug land on the water to lay its eggs, a stonefly, and then that stonefly lands and is waddling around and floats down their seam of current, it is way more likely to eat a fly that has landed. What I want to iterate to you, and I don't care whether you're wading or you're in a boat or whatever, let's just say we're in a boat, okay? So we're floating downstream, and I can look at the water, and although I can't see the fish, an experienced guide or caster can look at a piece of water, and it can, he, can, he or she can look at seam lines or structure and say, there's a fish right there in uh, the rolling chop just after that boulder. There's a fish right there where those two little foam lines are squeezing together. There's a fish right there on that little ledge that I can see. And although you can't see the trout, you have to treat it just like sight casting. You have to treat it like a high stakes opportunity. And if you just start slapping the water in there haphazardly and attempting to float your fly for 25 feet, you're going to have far less success than the precision caster that can drop that fly three or four feet upstream of where he knows there to be a fish, land it delicately, stick the landing so there's no additional mends or garbage happening, no disruption of the fly, no making V-wakes on your fly when you mend it. V-wakes are a dead giveaway that the bug is it's fake. Uh, you could still twitch it and move it, but generally, generally stoneflies, the rings and wakes that come off them are round and not V-wakes like a dragging fly on a line. And if you drop that fly on the first fish and, and drop it indelicately, the second fish, the third fish, the fourth fish, you can stack the odds in your favor so far, so far in your favor that the trout will have a tough time not eating your fly. And I hear it over and over again that people don't experience consistent dry fly fishing. And I'm here to tell you, you're not going to be able to do it every time, all the time. But one thing is you pro you, you may not be in a seven, eight or nine or 10 out of 10 on this, the skill, the, the level of dry fly skill that it takes to, to have highly consistent dry fly fishing. You might still be doing a lot of the same mistakes, you know, where you cast with a tight line and, and then you have a traditional mend where you pull the whole leader tight and then you're experiencing micro drag and the fish is seeing a V weight come off your fly, although it's super subtle you're not showing, you're not delicately landing the fly on that water and selling that dry fly to the trout, which you have to sell that dry fly to the trout. You have to learn how to, uh, to cast with English in your line. So you're, you're hooking it left, you're hooking it right, you're dropping controlled, controlled slack. If you don't know what parachute casts and stop casts are, positive hooks, which is an overpowered curve or an underpowered curve, you probably aren't getting as effective a drifts as you could um, with some higher level coaching. So um, there's a lot of good, old, especially older books and videos um, out there on how to properly and really well present dry flies. Um, I'm happy to teach you um, if, if I get the opportunity, but this is stuff that you, you also, now it sounds easy, right? We're listening to a podcast. We're like, Oh man, I'm going to go out and I'm going to, I'm going to get the best rod I can afford. I'm going to, you know, Things like taper, a good tapered leader. I used to skimp and build my own leaders, and that's a bunch of crap. Get 
a really good quality, fresh tapered leader. There's nothing that flexes and moves like a proper dry fly leader for presenting dry flies. Longer the better um, because leaders don't carry as much drag. Lighter rods. Um, I guess on Friday, I meant to bring this up in the podcast just now remembering. Uh, they fished three weight rods all day. And they were able to hold drifts longer in slow edges because they were fishing ultra light lines, three weights, than you could with a five weight. Uh, because the three weight line is just, it's flat out thinner. And we ran long leaders. We ran nine foot long three weight rods with nine foot three X leaders. Um, you have to have a stiff enough leader that a larger, like number 10 fly doesn't spin the tippet. Uh, we ran nine foot three X leaders, uh, three weight rods were able to hold a lot of drifts in the slack edges uh, that, that we wouldn't have been able to with heavier rods and, uh, and shorter leaders. Uh, but, you know, fish like your sight casting. Pretend you get one shot at these fish and it makes a huge difference in your execution. You will catch more fish. Learn to properly false cast. That is one thing I... I why people don't understand when and how to false cast is beyond me. It's just, it's one of the biggest stumbling points for anglers. They just pick the fly up and slap it down. They have less accuracy. They've got a soggy fly and they can't drop that fly and hover it delicately just before it hits the water and set it down just right and sell it to that trout. Learn to false cast. The most accurate method I found is two false casts and then drop it. But like mandatory, one false cast and drop. That's the only way that you're going to learn to put hooks and underpowered or overpowered curves into your line and set that fly down with just dead-ass accuracy. I mean, you need to be able to hit paper plate size spots if you want to call yourself, you know, a highly capable dry fly angler. So the other thing, lastly, and most important, and, and I didn't have to weather out, you know, too many doldrums over the last few days, but you've got to be willing, if you want to be a good dry fly angler and, and experience great dry fly fishing, you've got to be willing to go dry fly fishing and just flat out not catch much. And just go, you know what, I'm going to cast a dry fly all damn day and I might get whatever, two or three or four fish, but I'm going to get good at throwing a dry fly. And, uh, and you know, there, Yvonne Chouinard uh, is, is founder of Patagonia and uh, I'm, I'm not like, I don't idolize him on Chenard. I've listened to a few podcasts where he's been on and stuff, but he did something kind of cool and he, he fished the same fly for a year and he didn't fish any different fly. He fished a soft tackle pheasant tail and he fished it, you know, he could use different sizes, but it had no weight to it. And he fished it as a dry fly. He fished it as a merger. He fished it for bonefish. He fished it for everything. And what he said is by the end of the year, his ability to simply present flies, he became profoundly more capable fly fisherman. Now, I'm not suggesting you need to go to that extreme, but what if you just fished just dries and you became very good at fishing just dries? Uh, I think you would gain a lot from setting aside some time to just fish dry flies and stick with them and, uh, and become better at casting them, presenting them, and selling them to the trout because it's the only means of success that you have. And I almost did that in Patagonia. I fished a few little leeches in the lakes and I did fish a dropper nymph once, uh, at some rising fish, but, uh, I was very content most days. My last day of fishing, I hooked six fish all day in Patagonia and I threw nothing but dries. And that's all I took with me 
were dry flies all day fishing that day, even though I could have caught far, far more fish. And I am so good with that. Um, your, your ability to present a fly and hunt a trout down with a dry fly becomes exponentially better. So you've got to be willing to commit to the dry fly. You've got to be willing to do it if you anticipate or would like to have success doing it. And I'll be frank with you on Saturday or no, excuse me, on Sunday, I, it was daylight savings time. So everything was kind of moved back an hour, um, for the bite. And I watched angler after angler after angler give up and leave the river on Sunday because they did not have the dry fly confidence to stick with it. They thought, oh, it's a beautiful day. It's the right time of year. We're going to have some dry fly fishing. And they gave up. Um, they gave up way too soon. They weren't confident. They didn't stick with it. And I had my anglers fish nothing but dry flies after lunch. And I'll be honest, it was slow for about two hours. And I just made them stick with it and talk to them about how to get the right presentation, how to throw the curveball, uh, how to get the right shot, how to read the water, the correct seams um, that we want to be in. Um, generally, with early spring fishing, uh, it's better for your fly to be a big fly in a small seam than a small fly in a big seam. And I'm speaking figuratively there, not about the size of the fly, but find small seams, break big rivers down and fish the river within the river, and you'll have a lot more success. But on Sunday, we weathered it out and I made them stick with dries. We had been pounding them on nymphs. Um, and, uh, up to that point, and I just said, nah, we're going dry fly fishing. And I could tell there was a little skepticism after we got about 30 to 45 minutes into it. You know, more skepticism at an hour and 15. By about an hour and a half after lunch, we're consistently finding lunker trout uh, on dry flies. And that's not going to continue. The fishing that we had is, I'm not hyping this up, try to get you to come out fishing this weekend or next week or anything like that. You, you better be prepared for some tough days because that's what March does to us. But we stuck with it. They got very good at it. And I watched those two anglers by the end of the day. They're good friends of mine. I fished with them a lot. But by the end of the day, I watched their ability to present a dry fly with dead-ass accuracy improve dramatically. And when I get those guys back out for the next hatch and the next hatch and the next hatch, I know I've got a couple of ringers in the boat that we can fish with dry flies and fish on the terms that we really enjoy uh, and fish the way we want to do it. So um, I'm certainly, I'm not anti-nymphing. I nymph a lot um, still, but I think uh, I think more people would get hooked on fly fishing and stay with it and be dedi supremely dedicated to it if they had more success on dry flies and they could simply move the fly around the river uh, more more like a, a skilled angler. So dry flies, you can move the fly around the river faster and more efficiently. And when you get to that point, um, the bite gets a lot easier. The success on dries gets a lot easier. So um, those are some of the things I've learned. Uh, don't forget to go follow us on Instagram, okay? Uh, I did not streamer fish this last week. Generally, this time of year, we've got good hatches coming up. I dropped the streamers. I don't do a lot of that. Uh, look up our University of Fly Fishing. If you want to get damn good at fly fishing, that's the number one way to do it. I believe in the program. There's nothing else like it uh, in the country. And we hope to see you May 2nd because you could possibly win a Watermaster boat or a Sage Rod or 
a master's degree tuition in our Reds University of Fly Fishing. So I'm going to be there giving out seminars. There's going to be a lot of great presenters. Hope to see you at Reds May 2nd. It's a totally free event. Um, go to the event page. You can find it on the homepage of our site. Uh, I, we hope to see you there. There's just nothing else like it. And like I said, if you're thinking about coming in from outside the area or other parts of the country, uh, just grab a hotel in Ellensburg. I think the lodge is full by this point. And try to nail down a guide and uh, come up and do a little guided fishing with us on Friday or Sunday or Monday or something like that and uh, enjoy the rendezvous throughout the weekend. So hopefully you learned something about early spring fishing on this podcast. Uh, Like I said, you can now check it out on iTunes if you prefer to do that. Have a great day and fish on.